0: DiscerningHearts.com presents A Handmaid of the Lord The Life and Legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker Dr. Walker is an editor of the journal Communio an international Catholic review. He received his doctorate in philosophy at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. He has served as a translator for the English edition of Pope Benedict XVI's Jesus of Nazareth as well as numerous other theological works, including those of Hans Urs von Balthasar and Adrienne von Speyer. Adrienne von Speyer is a Swiss convert, mystic, wife, medical doctor, and author of over 60 books on spirituality and theology. She's inspired countless souls around the world to deepen their mission of prayer and compassion. She entered the Catholic Church under the direction of the great theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. In the years that would follow, they would co-found the Secular Institute, the Community of St. John, a handmaid of the Lord, the life and legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. An excerpt from The Handmaid of the Lord by Adrian von Speyer, from the chapter entitled Mary and Joseph. In her ascent, Mary gave the angel an unrestricted promise without first consulting Joseph. In doing so, she did not encroach upon his rights and did not arbitrarily make dispositions about their marriage. God disposed and Mary complied. The marriage between Mary and Joseph does not remain untouched by God's disposition. But Mary's assent did not determine Joseph's attitude in advance. He still remains free to reply yes or no to the angel he too will have to make a personal decision. In doing so, in order to be able to accept God's decision, he will have to say no to the plans he has made, including the plan to divorce Mary. And when he says yes to God, he will subordinate his decision to Mary's. His obedience will be ordered to and subordinated to Mary's obedience certainly his ascent is spoken directly to God but even so it retains a secondary character taking the lead from Mary's it is comprehended and contained in the ascent of Mary who has already inclusively said yes for him for the Lord through his incarnation wants to be born into a family. Therefore, he must also find a man who will carry out this will of his. And this can be no other than the bridegroom of the mother of God. Thus, her ascent goes beyond her personal destiny, and not unconsciously so. She knows of its consequences for herself, for Joseph, for the Lord, and for all mankind. For everything which is essentially involved in this, she is essentially prepared.
1: It's a real marriage, and it's virginal. There's a renunciation that's involved for, for Joseph.
0: Joseph is the one that has to die um. all of the things that he thought... He was supposed to do. I mean, Von Spire's understanding of St. Joseph is just wonderful. The
1: thing that struck me is, and I think it's in this chapter, is how precisely by his renunciation, precisely by agreeing not to be Jesus's physical, biological father, he participates in some way in the paternity Of, it's not a biological fact, clearly, because he's not Jesus's biological father. And yet at the same time, to say, as Mary does in Luke, uh, your father and I have been looking for you, means something. It's not a legal fiction, simply. That there is some mysterious way in which, precisely by his renunciation and his silence and his agreement to be at the service of this thing that he doesn't really understand that's just so much bigger than he is, that he actually is given a kind of share in the paternity of the Heavenly Father without that implying any kind of diminishment of the mystery of the virgin birth. And so I think, yeah, there is a a kind of a Josephology built into Audrienne's Mariology that would be really interesting to kind of think about further.
0: The relationship in marriage, Mary's obedience to the father is also her obedience in her role as wife. But then there's that mutual love. And right. here is the essence of what Christian marriage would be defined. Because Christ is in the center of it all. And Joseph's response to that, after that Paul writes about marriage, it kind of comes to life in the Holy Family in which we love so much.
1: Well, that's right. And the thing is, I mean, I think that point can't be emphasized enough because, again, to say that Mary has a theological significance or that the Holy Family has a theological significance takes nothing away from the ordinary, full, three-dimensional humanity of the Holy Family. If it did, then it wouldn't be a theological significance worth believing in. That reminds me of something that I read a couple of weeks ago. It's a wonderful essay by Dorothy Sayers called Why Work? She talks about the Christian significance of work, and she says that the Christian significance of work consists fundamentally in doing the work well (laughs) and she says imagine if Christ during his years uh, working with Joseph I mean that's another aspect I mean obeying him he was the boss of the shop imagine if he had done shoddy work she says would it be believable that the hand that did that shoddy work was the same hand that made the universe no And I think that captures really nicely an aspect of Audrianne's meditation on the whole family, that in fact it is a family that actually did live on earth. That's the mystery of the incarnation is that the whole of the mystery of God, 100% of God, is able to be uniquely present in 100% of the humanity of Christ. But Christ came from... Mary, humanly speaking, she is the mother of God. There's a way that Joseph has to be present, not just to assure Christ Davidic descent, but also in order for Christ to experience what human fatherhood is, not because Joseph is Jesus' biological father, but because by his renunciation of biological fatherhood, because he has to be the spouse of Mary who is going to remain a virgin, right? So, I mean, his complete renunciation of biological fatherhood, he participates in the fecundity of the Heavenly Father's fatherhood and and maybe is able to embody something of it for Jesus within this framework of a real human family that actually lived on earth that actually worked for a living, and so forth. That's where all of this amazing theological mystery is present, right there.
0: And that's how, just in one aspect of this, how priesthood, the man who becomes a priest in a very real way, like Joseph, takes the church as his bride, takes that same dimension, and that relationship the priest has with Mary can become like that type of relationship. is very Joseph in its nurturing.
1: Exactly. And then
0: another aspect of all of this is the fact that, that it's not just the family that lived 2,000 years ago, but Mary in that, yes, we very much, because by virtue of the baptism, now it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2 220 she is our mother
1: absolutely and we
0: are as loved we've entered into that same family
1: yes to both things there's not any opposition between the particular historical humanity of the life of jesus and therefore of the of the persons that surrounded him that were an essential part of that life and their universal significance, not just in our heads, but as a reality which involves us right now. That's right. The maternity of Mary, the devotion to St. Joseph, these aren't just, how shall I say, acts of private devotion. They are ways of allowing ourselves to be sort of embraced by or enfolded in this mystery of faith which is at one and the same time utterly supernatural, the virgin birth for example, and utterly natural, <laughs> utterly part of history. And that's what we're being drawn into among other things, you know, when we have a devotion to the Holy Family so that the devotion takes on a kind of, I'm going to use the word cosmic, and I know that sort of sounds strange, but it takes on almost a kind of cosmic significance, you know, because these realities are at the very heart of everything. They're what makes sense of everything, not only of our own lives, but I mean literally everything. And that's what we're plugging into when we pray to St. Joseph or when we call Mary our mother and so forth. I mean, there'd be a lot more to say about the maternity of Mary, about the priesthood and so forth.
0: It came to me as you were standing that of those relationships in community, Mary encompasses all the different charisms. It jumps out at me, that scene where she goes to little Juan Diego and says, little Juanito, do you not know I am your mother? But then it's the same love and hospitality that she would go to the Benedictines and then the same contemplative nature of the Carmelites and all the other different orders and their relationships within those communities.
1: It's good that you bring up the different religious communities because you could say that if the relationship between Mary and Joseph brings her close to married people, the relationship between Mary and John... Brings her close to consecrated people. Now, of course, there's also a sort of exchange of gifts here. So, consecrated people have a devotion to the Holy Family, and married people have a devotion to Mary and John. So, it's not a kind of either or, but maybe you could say there's a certain accent in each case. The relationship between Mary and John, again, as you pointed out earlier, she's not writing a biography with details that she's getting from some other source. She's just meditating on chapter 19 of John's gospel where Mary is under the cross as are Mary Magdalene and, you know, Mary, the wife of Cleophas. Then John is there. Somehow he managed to find his way back after running away like the other guys did. At a certain point, Christ, knowing that the end is just a few minutes away, says, a woman, behold your son, a son, behold your mother. And... From that hour, I'm I'm translating literally, the disciple took her into his own, which I think means not just he took her into his home, but he took her into everything that was his. He became Marian, as it were, through and through. So there's a kind of man-woman relationship there, but it's not a marriage. Mary doesn't love John in the same way that she loved Joseph, and John doesn't love her in the same way that Joseph loved her. Clearly there's a love there, but it's a love that, so to speak, takes its origin more directly from the person of Christ himself as Redeemer, so suffering on the cross. It's a kind of a community, a kind of love that's founded more directly from the cross. And so who is raison d'etre is going to be more specifically the cross. And so we really are in the realm of the foundation of the consecrated life. And it's interesting that that foundation also involves a complementarity, a dual unity, as it were, of the sexes, even though it's not a marriage but a different kind of relationship. And yet you also see the complementarity of marriage and consecration because the relationship between Mary and Joseph was virginal. So it wasn't just a kind of a normal marriage in that sense. So there's a kind of mysterious also complementarity between the two states of life. There's a difference. It's a very clear difference. But there's also a unity.
0: We'll return to A Handmaid of the Lord with Dr. Adrian Walker in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging, multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts, and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts
1: in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since
0: the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to A Handmaid of the Lord with Dr. Adrian Walker. It's a challenge for many, maybe in consecrated life, sure. maybe it's just in general women in their role in the church, that Mary, particularly after Pentecost, she fades if from what we may perceive as view, but in essence, she is obedient to John then. John then becomes one who is the head of the house. Peter, who will now become the head of the church. She doesn't lose anything.
1: No, in no, any on, the con- on the contrary.
0: And that's a, a struggle for modern women in some areas.
1: Yeah, John Paul II's uh, letter, you know, Mulieres dignitatem, draws a lot on Balthazar's theology of the relationship between Mary and Peter and that theology draws a lot on Adrienne. It's really interesting that John Paul II says very much in the spirit of Adrienne the Petrine dimension of the church in a way is less central than the Marian dimension. And yet, (laughs) as you say, Mary doesn't sort of say, well hey look I'm the mother of God so I'm going to be running the church now. She, who is the mother of the church and who is the soul of the church, at the same time, takes her place as a kind of member, as it were, under Peter. And for Adrienne, John has a very kind of important role in mediating that relationship, because on the one hand, he has that closeness with her that's founded on the cross. And at the same time, he's one of the apostles who himself gives Peter, acknowledges the primacy of Peter. So you're identifying something really, really, really central that in a way, Peter is more, and in another way, he's less. And you mentioned something similar in relation to Joseph, and that's true. I mean, we can imagine that, you know, he was the head of the household. And that's why the angel often appeared to him and said, okay, now take the child and the mother and go to Egypt. He's the one that had to sort of wake them up in the middle of the night and say, okay, let's go. He was probably the boss in the carpenter's shop and so forth. And yet, <laughs> his being in charge is based on his recognition of not being at the center of the action. And that is hard for us to understand. It's hard for both sort of feminists and for, I'm going to say us conservative Catholics to understand that on the one hand, it's hard for us conservative Catholics to understand how Peter and the whole hierarchical aspect of the church is both indispensable Exists by divine foundation, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Has all of those prerogatives, infallibility, indefectibility, and so forth, and yet is secondary, is not the core of the church. It exists in order to protect. There is the the theme of Joseph, the core of the church, which is Marian, that Mary and the Marian dimension, if you will, even the lay dimension is what's at the heart of the church. And yet, on the other hand, it's hard for feminists, if I may use that language, I hope nobody is offended out there, on either on the conservative side or the feminist side, to understand that the centrality and all importance of the Marian and so of the feminine Balthazar and others talk about how the creature, all creatures before God are first feminine, that the absolute centrality of that doesn't mean I'm running things. Even even I'm aware, even listening to myself saying this, I'm I know that the way that I'm saying this is that I'm doing it in a kind of tonality that probably gives the wrong impression. This is something that we have to ponder and sort of overcome. Pre- our preconceptions on both sides.
0: Adrian makes a wonderful inroad on this when she helps us to see that Mary ultimately trusts and is at peace because it's the will of the Father. Her son does the will of the Father, and she trusts that he has chosen Joseph. She trusts that John has been called to this knows because the son does the will of the father and the son gave her this. That Peter is in this role as the head of the church because her son does the will of the father. She is so obedient and trustful that she's at peace with whatever is going to happen.
1: Absolutely. And maybe here we can sort of bring in the human element again, right? Because The distinction between man and woman in the creation and in the church isn't arbitrary. It has an utterly profound significance that goes to the very roots of things. Mary, we can imagine, in her sane humanity, would have understood that better than anybody else. There's a kind of a mystery there that the man has to play a role of representation. He has to represent something else that gives the man both a greatness and a kind of vulnerability, weakness. A greatness because he's representing something bigger, right? And yet a weakness because he's representing something that's not him. And he has to be a Joseph or a Saint John which means that no matter how sort of strong and decisive and capable he is, he's always representing something that's not him. And that, I think, is something that, again, is so, is so mysterious. But, I mean, Mary, in her sane, feminine humanity would have understood that and she would have understood that the woman embodies a different mystery, which has both its greatness and its weakness, and that the beauty of the distinction of the sexes is in both the greatness and the weakness of each. And we we think that we're so advanced, we don't understand these things anymore. It's not just a question of we've become disobedient or something to divine commands it's that we we don't understand how to read the language that's you know what john paul ii called the language of the body the symbolism that's been built into the distinction between man and woman and you know Audrienne has a whole meditation on a whole book called the theology of the sexes which hasn't been translated yet which i i'd love to do someday see this wonderful interplay of and looking, first of all, at what the distinction between the sexes in its physical manifestation means, and then thinking about what that will imply for theology, and then vice versa. Thinking about how, for example, the relationship between Christ and Mary, that's another man-woman relationship, or Christ and the Church, reflects... Or illuminates the, the distinction between the, the sexes and so forth. So that's what I think we really need to take away from this is that this is, has absolutely nothing to do with politics in the bad sense, which is to say, who's going to grab the power? It's got absolutely nothing to do with that. It has to do with what things are and doing justice to things, which was another very, very important point for Adrienne doing justice to things. Doing justice to the way things are. The distinction between man and the, and woman and all of the richness that's tied up with that distinction is part of that. It's part of how things are.
0: The church has always had such a rich appreciation. We we try to explain it as the immaculate heart of Mary right. or all the different uh, that litany of Loretto, and yeah. it just goes on and on, the seed of wisdom, mirror of of justice, exactly. all of those things. Exactly. But to bring this particular conversation to up, uh, I think it's beautiful what Adrienne does with the Assumption. That moment where Mary, her role and her place and her continued mission, is revealed in its fullness. When we call upon her, or when she calls yeah. to us, she is a mother that truly knows.
1: Yeah, I mean, just one thing that that sort of leaps out: certain Marian apparitions where uh, Mary's weeping. I mean, think about that, because she's assumed body and soul into heaven, so presumably is you know has a place right next to her son in heaven. So she's happy, and yet that doesn't kind of cut her off from the rest of us. It's sort of like what we were saying before, you know, that the fullness makes obedience and even the, the the pain of saying yes in certain circumstances possible. And there's something similar here that, I mean, heavenly beatitude apparently is not incompatible with sympathizing in the literal sense, which means suffering with us. So think yeah, Adrienne uh, sort of justifies theologically, you know, the instinct of the Christian people or of the Catholic people, which has always been to go to Mary, the consolatrix afflictorum, you know, the one who consoles the afflicted.
0: She refers to her so beautifully as the mother.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's another, that's another, that's another, capital really M. Important. Yeah, that's another really, point. really important point. I mean, typically, she'll talk about Christ simply as the Lord. And she'll talk about Mary simply as the mother. And you're right. And, and that's a beautiful example, too, of how these are the kinds of writings where words really matter. Don't just sort of get the main point and then move on. I mean, uh, the words stick stick in your mind. The more you, you kind of ponder them, to use your term, the more they break themselves open, like seed. Maybe they're sort of small and hard at the beginning. But given the right soil and the right nutrients and the, the, right amount, the, the right amount of time, they start to open up from within. And pretty soon you've got a pretty big plant with a lot of fruit.
0: <laughs> well, Adrienne, I'm looking forward to our further conversation. I am
1: too, Chris. This has been very, very enjoyable. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to A Handmaid of the Lord, the life and legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker. To obtain the works of Audrianne von Speyer, go to Ignatius.com, the website for her publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find them at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for A Handmaid of the Lord, the life and legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker.